Well, welcome again to City Life this Saturday evening. I'm back. Uh, Cord, he's not in here. Maybe September we'll do a drive where we can just make sure he's got enough clothes in his drawers. <laughs> so we'll figure all that out, but uh, pray for him. He's out there somewhere. Anyways, we have had an awesome time of worship, awesome time in communion. We've considered our giving, all the exciting thing that God is doing here at City Life, but every Saturday we come together and it's really a privilege in our culture to come together around the word of God, you know, which, which the scripture itself says is living and active. So as, as, as it's preached tonight, as we look and dive into it tonight, this word is living and active. And let me just encourage you, let your listening be alive and active. I don't know what that looks like for you, whether it's taking notes, whether it's saying amen, whatever it takes for you to track. Come on, let our listening tonight as we dig into the word be living and active. And if you're taking notes, the, the title of the sermon tonight is simply the power of pause, the power of pause. Because we started a sermon series in July called Your Cell, Your Soul, Eternal Wisdom for the Smartphone Age. And the timing is because it was 10 summers ago in 2007 when the iPhone was released. And since then, over 1 billion iPhones have been sold. Not smartphones, not smart devices. iPhones themselves have been sold. So there are smart devices all over. There's more smart devices on the planet right now than there are living human beings. I'm pretty sure that's how the movie Terminator started. I'll have to check, but... It's not scary, but at the same time, May 3rd of 2016, the editors of Time Magazine, they named iPhone the single most influential gadget of all time, saying that the iPhone fundamentally changed our relationship to computing and information, a change likely to have repercussions for decades to come. So the question we've been asking ourselves in this series is, what are the repercussions? And not just any repercussions, what are the repercussions for us as believers and for us in the, in the faith? Because, again, screens are everywhere, and our phones are all but attached to us, and we benefit from our cell phones. We also abuse our smartphones, and what's the balance between us having these devices and these devices having us? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. So this series is not at all anti-cell phone. We'll get to more of that, but what it is saying is what is the proper place for all of this technology in a life that's trying to keep Jesus Christ in his proper place? At the center, at the heart of our focus, and at the core of our being. And we realize as we go through this technological age that all these technological innovations, all these technological inventions are theological invitations to look at, okay, what do I believe and how do I most effectively walk that out in my context? And for our time and our context, we have a timeless text. We have the word of God, which is, again, living and active. It's timeless and it's relevant even now in this age. It speaks to the timeless issues we've been looking at. Again, situational awareness weeks ago. The power of our words. Authenticity in a selfie culture. These aren't new problems. But tonight I want to take a fresh look at Scripture. And I want to look at 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 13. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 13. It's funny, the two headings before this, as it's, it's in the story of Elijah, is the contest on Mount Carmel, which is one of the biggest contests or events in the Old Testament. And then we have Elijah prays for rain. Ends a, a multi-year drought through prayer. It's two powerful events. And then we get Elijah 19, which seems like a, a total 
180, where it says, Elijah flees to Sinai. It said, when King Ahab got home, starting in verse 1, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you as you killed them. You can get the gist from here. They didn't exactly get along, right? They worshiped Baal. He worshiped the one true God. They just had a confrontation. The prophets of Baal, they didn't make it. So verse 3, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up. And eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai. It had to been a lot of food to fuel that 40-day journey. Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Then he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, God, that this text we read, this Bible is living, it's active. God, it's relevant to each one of us in whatever situation we're walking through, whatever we walked in here with. You would say to us tonight, what are you, what are you doing here? Not like we shouldn't be here, but what, are, what do we need? What are we asking for? What are we seeking? What are we knocking? Because God wants to meet us in that through his word, through worship, and impact us where we are. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just use this sermon, these next 30 minutes, Lord God, to impact each one of us where we are, where we have doubt, bring faith, where we're hopeless, bring hope, Lord God, where we're weak, bring strength. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. So before we went and got Raj, my wife and I, we just adopted. He's probably back in the nursery with her right now, but uh, hopefully. But he's before we went and got them from India at the end of February, they gave us kind of orientation, prepared us for everything we were going to go see and do. And, and some great advice they gave us is they said, when you get to the orphanage and you get to the atmosphere that Raj has been living in now for, for almost two years, take note of, of what he senses. Not so that we could replicate, you know, crib on top of crib on top of crib, but, but what, what does he sound? What does he hear with his ears? Like, like what is he smelling? And, and what can we replicate at home? So... I want to show you a quick video. This is actually a pretty precious video. It's the first time Steph held him um, there in Pune in India at the orphanage. And, and just listen. Just listen. 
We'll start it over because there's sound. you're like, man, it's quiet there. It's so quiet. We'll see. <laughs> this is what it actually sounded like. So it was loud. It was loud there. There are three, over three million people that live in Pune. It's, I think, the 101st biggest city in the world. Didn't quite make the top 100. 101st biggest city. And right outside of this orphanage was the, the main road. I don't know if you've been to, to India or countries with, with those kind of traffic laws, where there really aren't really much traffic laws. There's just people on mopeds with their whole family driving like James Bond and whatever. But a lot of horns, a lot of traffic, noisy. So when we got home, we realized he's probably not going to sleep in, in straight-up silence. So what we did is what we, we sleep with as well. We sleep with a, a, a white noise app. What's white noise? White noise is a tool that, that really, it's a tool. It's used to mask sound that you don't want to interrupt you. Some office buildings will use this in big open floor spaces of a building to drown out distracting conversations and keep private conversations private when everybody's just in one big room in cubicles. But it also masks sounds that you don't want to hear at home. Maybe for some of you, it's the sound of your spouse snoring. Or in college, for me, my roommate, who's been my best man, and I'm going to be his best man next year, uh, he, I loved him, but he liked to watch TV. Or not watch TV, but have the TV on as he slept. And not on silent, but just he slept with the TV on. And, and I was kind enough to let him do that, and I just slept with a fan like right here, right? <laughs> Not exactly quiet, but peace. Didn't get peace and quiet, but I got a little bit of peace when I slept. So I've always slept with either a fan or a white noise app. But as we talk about the technology that downloads and hosts these apps, what if what's getting drowned out by the symphony of, of prompts and notifications and messages is our ear for the voice of God? What if we're missing the whisper? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Ephesians 5.14 where it says, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He will give you light. And the cry from this scripture, and we see it again and again in scripture, is to wake up. And the question that arises is, especially in our culture, has our frenetic pace, ironically, turned us spiritually into sleepwalkers? As technology and the pursuits it makes available to us kind of turned up the spiritual white noise. And the cry to wake up is as prevalent today as it's been throughout history. Because we'll see again tonight, it's not necessarily a new problem. But the way we can do this in our church, in our culture, through our faith is in two things tonight. And the first, come on, as we get rolling, is a change in pace. Simply learning the power of hitting pause. We spoke on this a few weeks ago when we talked about rest, but in 1910, the average American got nine hours of sleep. By a show of hands that evening, not many of us got nine hours of sleep every night. And why were they getting so much sleep? It's not because they were lazy, but man, you try to stay up 10, 11, midnight when it's dark outside and your only source of light is a candle, right? <laughs> Eventually, you'll probably give up, just go to bed. But then they invited, invented light bulbs, electricity, where all of a sudden I can work into the evening. My, work, my workaholic nature, I can do this till one, two, three in the morning, and we got less and less sleep, and sleep became less and less of a priority. And, and it's alarming because they found that about seven hours of sleep is ideal for the average person. Getting seven hours is healthy, and one out of three people, they don't get seven hours. And there's repercussions health-wise. 
We went through it those weeks past where there's a laundry list of health issues, and one of them is premature death. That's kind of the, the exclamation point at the end of the list. And we talked about those details recently. Why return to them? And, and why go from a verse about waking up to thoughts about sleeping more? Because, again, white noise, it, it makes sound and it helps many sleep. But does our workaholic busyness, does it act as white noise that can mask unwanted emotions? How often do digital distractions, as well as the ability to embrace more and more work, provide us with a, a wanted escape from honest, raw introspection? We say we want simplicity, but in a lot of ways in our lives, we just show again and again that really we want complexity. We want the noise to be turned up so that we don't have to pause and think about our mortality. Think about the eternity-sized void that God has put in our hearts, according to Ecclesiastes 3. But again, as we found every week, this isn't a new problem brought about by smartphones or even the invention of light bulbs. There's a 17th century Basically, Renaissance man. He was a mathematician, inventor, theologian, Blaise Pascal. And he observed his culture in the 17th century. And what he said about his culture was this. Take away their diversion, and you will see them dried up with weariness. It is to be ushered into unhappiness as soon as we are reduced to thinking of self and have no diversion. I've discovered that all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. This is in the 17th century not a new problem. And forget the 17th century. Go all the way back to thousands of years ago in the Old Testament where we see the account of Elijah. In 1 Kings 19, he was coming off this highlight reel, flurry of activity, good activity, serving God. But in 1 Kings 19, was Elijah finally experiencing emotions that he hadn't had the time to address because he was so busy? I don't know the answer to that, but one thing is for sure. Healing came when he learned that he had to pause. There was power in hitting pause and dealing with the things he was dealing with. You know, if I would have said the word binge 10 years ago, probably would have thought like eating, drinking, consumption, binge eating, binge drinking. But now I say that binge in our culture, what do you think of? TV, Netflix, entertainment, consumption, because it's, it's kind of gone from my dad used to go, you know, I'm going up to bed as a kid. He's like, I'm going to watch a show. Then I'm going to go to bed. Now it's like, I'm going to watch a season, and I might go to bed before I work tomorrow. Netflix is set up. Maybe you don't have Netflix. Maybe you do. It's a trap because you watch 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes of whatever it is you're watching, and then it gives you a 30-second window to reassess your life and maybe get up and do something else. But if you just, in that 30 seconds, maybe go get a drink and come, it starts automatically. And what's funny is... I went online because I wasn't sure, was it 10 seconds, was it 15, was it 30? It's 30 seconds. But when I Googled the break for Netflix, the first thing I found (laughs) on Google is how to get rid of the pause, right? How to just go from episode to episode without that annoying break. But for how many of us, like, that's our life. You go, you go, you go, you go, you go. And maybe you get this little pause, but then you start going and going and going again. And so much in our culture, if we could get rid of pausing altogether, we would because it's like we... We could accomplish more if we just never stop. But in a life that binges on busyness, it's also led to burnout. Our culture that celebrates life at a breakneck pace is breaking people. 225 million workdays are lost every year in the U.S. related to stress. We live in a burnout culture. And so often when we get burnout, the chorus is, how did I get here? 
And you know, the church isn't immune. Neither are its leaders. 20% of all pastoral resignations are due to burnout. You see Elijah, this giant in the faith, probably the greatest prophet in the Bible outside of Moses, and he's affected by burnout. He wasn't immune to it. It's not a new problem, and it's no respecter of persons. Because from the garden, at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we've wanted to run the world. And sometimes we act like we are actually running the world. And in acting and behaving like we run the world, we miss out on communion with the one who actually does. <laughs> and things in our life, good things, like the good things Elijah was doing, turned up too loud, can become white noise where it keeps us from hearing what we're supposed to hear. Again, we can act like we run the world. At the very least, we get to run our little social media world. Control what we say, our friends, all of that. But our chief activity, our one chief end in life, communion with God, the Father, communion with God Almighty, will only happen if we take the time to pause and do so. Sometimes when we think we run the world, we can't pause because what will happen? What will happen if we actually put our phone on airplane mode and took 30 minutes to read the Bible? What would happen in that 30 minutes? We think we're superhuman. You look at Superman. Superman had what was called the Fortress of Solitude, where he would just put everything behind him and go be secluded for a while to reboot. Superman. For us, it seems counterintuitive, though. We mistake activity for productivity, when really there's a lot of activity we can do in life that isn't productive at all. And we mistake rest and solitude for inactivity. But what if solitude and and seclusion, it's not inactivity, but a supremely necessary activity? See, Elijah had been going at alarming, an alarming pace, basically doing superhuman things. Think about this story. He called down fire from heaven. like He's like the human torch. He prayed. He changed the weather. He's like storm from X-Men. He outran a charity. He's like the flash. Sorry, your pastor's a nerd, but you read through that, and you just realize he's doing superhuman things, and yet he needed to, hey, pump the brakes, pause. God called Elijah when he was burnt out to this mountaintop to be alone, to step into seclusion, and to step into solitude. But again, that same Renaissance man we quoted from the 17th century, he said the pleasure of solitude is a thing incomprehensible. And then Richard Foster, a theologian and author, he said loneliness is inner emptiness, but solitude is inner fulfillment. What's he talking about? Well, we see in Luke 5.16, it says Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness to pray in seclusion. Solitude seclusion, stepping away, hitting pause. That was something that Jesus embraced again and again through the gospel. So if he does something, he does it again and again. He repeatedly does it. I know I should value it, right? And Jesus himself valued solitude, hitting pause, going to pray and be with the Father before stepping right back into just his prolific ministry. And what does the account of Elijah tell us? Well, we read here, in 1 Kings 19, where loneliness was Elijah's problem, he literally thought, he, meant, he said, they've killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. He felt lonely. Loneliness was his problem. Yet solitude was his solution. God takes him to the mountaintop, to seclusion, to solitude, to pause. And ironically, it's in solitude where God reminds him that he's not alone. And I love that it wasn't like, hey, there's like seven other guys that are still faithful. Or 70, there were 7,000 that were still faithful that he just wasn't aware of. And God was able to remind him, hey, you got this. And Elijah finishes his ministry strong. But again, we talked last week how our phones have given us the the desire and ability 
to be secluded in public, to be alone in public, and then never alone when we're in solitude. Our phones steal our pauses. They can be white noise. They can be the fire, the wind, or the rain that drowns out the voice of God. I did a little more research this week, and there was some findings in, in, in one study where people swipe their phones up to 2,600 times a day. I'm talking like a million times a year. What drives this? So often we fear if, if, if I'm out of sight, I'll be out of mind, and I won't matter anymore. I think, therefore, I am has been replaced by I connect, therefore, I am, and then replaced by I share, therefore, I am. There's a, there's a, a, a clinical diagnosis called nomophobia. I love it. It's nomo, like nomo phone, nomophobia. It's the fear of being without a mobile device or beyond mobile phone contact. Maybe you felt this, though, like where you realize, I just left the house. One time I left to go visit Steph when we were dating long distance. I got all the way to Richmond. I was really like, I don't have my phone on me. And I felt naked in that moment. Like, I, I'm missing something. I might as well have been driving down the highway naked. I, was, I don't have my phone on me. You know, 58% of people say that they can't go an hour without checking their phone. 84% of people say they can't go a day without checking their phone. They would go crazy. And fueling that fear is a more common fear, FOMO, fear of missing out, fear of missing out. But what does this affect, again, as followers of Christ? What does this do to us? And T. David Gordon, a professor of religion at Grove City College, he says, the scriptures commend meditation on God's word and reflecting on truths, which require a certain affinity for solitude. If the digital world trains people to find solitude itself off-putting, then they can't have much quality time with God. See, in a culture that finds solitude off-putting, we got to re-embrace the power of hitting pause. And, and not only do we need to hit pause but we, and change our pace, but we need to change our perception. We need to listen. Did you know that the word boredom is basically brand new? The word boredom didn't even exist till the 1850s. The root word to bore first appeared less than 300 years ago. It was first used by the rich and aristocratic because they needed uh, to be entertained. And this ability to be entertained, it undermined their ability to enjoy the ordinary. Hence, boredom. You know, driving most of our distractions and diversions is this promise of escaping boredom. Driving distracted, literally, we do that because we want to escape boredom and thinking and reflection. Like, I always think, man, if I was riding a horse and buggy hundreds of years ago, I'd be sitting in silence. I wouldn't have Hillsong, Lecrae playing. It would just be me in silence. I'd have to think. I'd have to reflect. I'd have to meditate. So perhaps the solution, though, isn't to escape boredom because it's inevitable, but to make it fruitful. We need to be, we need to learn to be alone in a fruitful way. You know, accounts of David, King David in the Old Testament, give us more than one example of when he was alone, and one time it was good, one time it was bad. The good, you can think of when he was bored as a shepherd. He had that sling, and he had those stones. How often was he probably putting something on a rock, like, I'm going to try to hit that, or I'm going to try to hit that bush, or that tree trunk over there, just slinging stones. The product of the mundane of, quote, unquote, boredom is what helped him topple the giant. But then we see King David, chapters and chapters later, Bored and away from the battlefield. He had graduated to the rich and aristocratic, and he felt the need to be entertained. And he entertained himself with another man's wife, and in one account, breaks all of the commandments. In Psalm 51, at the heart of his prayer of repentance is this verse, creating me a pure heart. You know, in Matthew 5, 8, 
Jesus says within the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And you know, for uh, many of us, and I know for me as a man, when we think of the word purity, we often think of purity in terms of sexual purity and keeping our heart clean. But what if purity is speaking as much to the clarity of our heart and mind as the cleanliness of our hearts? Not just about what's unclean, but keeping our lives uncluttered. Because purity in the purest sense of the word can speak to what's clear versus what's cloudy. Joe McNally, he's a writer and photography for National Geographic. He says, busyness is the enemy of clarity. Busyness creates cloudy. Busyness can create clutter. And as we've talked about, the, the virtues of our society are so often hyperconnectivity, multitasking, not solitude and meditation and pausing. But as we embrace this culture more and more, we can forfeit clarity for cloudiness. Douglas Gratus, author of The Soul in Cyberspace, he wrote, It is difficult to serve God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind when we are diverted and distracted and multitasking everything. Our spiritual condition today is one of spiritual ADD. You know, I think of the word multitasking as I was preparing this. I thought about that old AT&T commercial, those cute commercials where he would sit down at a table with the, the elementary age kids and he'd ask them questions. And at the beginning of one, he's like, what's better, doing one thing at a time or two things at a time? And every kid just shouts out, two, right? We value multitasking, being able to, to knock out so many things at our to-do list at once, not solitude, not meditation. And when you feel the call to pause, right? You begin to remember those articles that you see all the time online. Ten things you need to watch. Seven things you must do before you're 30 or 40. Where it's just like trying to claim our to-do list. What we need to do, but we know according to scripture, one thing we need to do in Psalm 4610 is be still and know that I am God. Reminds us that we need to stop pretending that we run the world and actually step into time with the one who does. Reminds us that we don't need to just unplug from the world. We need to plug into God. Yes, be still. Yes, pause. Yes, unplug. But hey, listen, perceive that I am God. It's a change in perception. We have to shift our focus, our perception, our perspective, and plug in. Because where there's no destination in mind, any road will do. If we aren't reminded why our time and resources are important because they're a gift from God, then we can just squander them aimlessly. But you know, when, when I squander my time aimlessly on Facebook, you know what I find funny? It's so often my friends my age and, and even a little older, we share the, the quizzes where we find out, hey, we're, we're, intro, we're introverts, right? Grew up thinking we're extroverts, but no, I'm actually, a, a, what is it, like extroverted introvert. I don't even know the terms. I don't know all the lingo. But it's funny because it's almost like introverts are the rage. Extroverts, everybody wants to be an extrovert. When you're a teenager, you want to collect friends like stamps. Or you want to be in the in crowd. You want to know people. You want to be known. But again, as, as adults, maybe it's not that being an introvert is cool, but we realize that a high number of friendships is just unsustainable. And we realize that the frenetic pace of intake and stimulation is less than ideal. And we're attempting to declutter and achieve clarity. You know, our minds can be so filled with, quote, unquote, clutter. I don't know if you ever work at a desk, have cleaned your desk, and all of a sudden there's, you can work with more clarity. It's the same with our minds. When we can clear our mind through pausing and being with God and just step into mindfulness. You know, in Matthew 6, 6, Jesus says, go into your room. Close the door. 
and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What's the reward? I believe part of the reward is clarity, vision, being able to see and hear what God sees and what he wants us to hear and what does it take? It takes a change in pace. Go in your room, close the door, and pause. It takes a change in perception to listen, to plug into God, to be still, but then also perceive and know that he's God. You know, Elijah, in his time of burnout, he had to pause and he had to listen. It would have been easy for him, again, coming out of this, this confrontation with the prophets of Baal where he called down fire from heaven, where when the fire's, you know, falling, it's there and there's the storm, which he had just prayed a storm into existence, this huge storm that ended this drought, that in those moments he could have pulled his phone out right and started Instagram and be like, look, Jesus is showing, this is what I was telling you about, like the fire from heaven, the storms, this is him, he's here, but God wasn't in that. And it would have been easy for him to mistake that because of what he was just walking in, but God was in the silence. You know, it says gentle whisper here, but other translations, you look at the Hebrew, it's the absence of noise that he was there. Almost like the space that was left when all the sound dissipated. God was found there. Elijah found God in solitude and silence, and it shifted his perspective. And again, it set him up to finish strong. You begin to continue to read the story of Elijah. There's no burnout like the one under that broom tree again. And you know what's powerful for me is Charles Spurgeon. Show of hands, who's heard of Charles Spurgeon, right? A hero of the faith. Incredible pastor, laundry list of, of things that he did. He was prolific in his life. He probably accomplished more in his life than I could intend. And I quoted him, I think, twice in the same sermon a couple weekends ago. And, and there's a, a website on Charles Spurgeon, and it says about his life that in 57 years, Charles Spurgeon accomplished, here you go, three lifetimes of work, probably 10 for me, <laughs> Every week he preached four to ten times, read six meaty books, revised sermons for publication, lectured, edited a monthly magazine. In his quote-unquote spare time, whatever that is for him, he wrote about 150 books. He shepherded the largest Protestant megachurch in the world and reportedly knew all 6,000 members by name. I don't believe you. (laughs) Directed a theological college, ran an orphanage, and oversaw 66 Christian charities prolific. That's superhuman. That's beyond human, right? This is the modern day Elijah just doing superhuman things. But you look at his life and you look at Elijah's life, Elijah finished strong. What I didn't know until recently is is Spurgeon spent a large part of the last third of his life out of the pulpit while he recovered from depression, anxiety, and multiple physical ailments. And he himself in his writings would connect his sickness and his depression to his overwork. Never knew that. But that doesn't make it into the biographies. It doesn't make it onto the websites because we don't celebrate that. We celebrate working, achieving things for God. We don't celebrate the pauses. We don't celebrate the sabbaticals. We don't celebrate the time spent in our prayer closet. But that's what fuels us. We live in a burnout culture, and then we burn out. We ask, how did I get here? I know the way out. The way out is to pause. It's to listen. What do you find when you you pause and you listen and you go to your prayer closet and step into the presence of God? You find grace. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30 in the message version. It says, are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me. This is Jesus speaking. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. 
I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Come on, we're called to be salt. We're called to be light, but we can't be a light when we're living burnt out. A shell without the heart, doing duties without joy. And if we don't slow down, God will slow us down. And as we see with Spurgeon, sometimes it's, it's painful and it's not pretty. But he does. The account of Mary and Martha in the Gospels, two sisters that were hosting Jesus in their home. One, just as soon as he got there, was like, all right, cool, pause. <laughs> Sits down, listens to him. Spends time in his presence. Martha, doing good work. Again, admirable activity. Keeping up the home. You want to be a good host, right? Like when you host Life Group, you're trying to get the food ready, keep the house clean. You're trying to be a, a pigsty up in here. But Martha, right, is still on this hamster wheel of to-do lists, seemingly worthy distraction. And Jesus basically calls her out because she's like, hey, Mary, you want to do something? But he reminds her that more important than any to-do list, any tasks we have is this call Jesus gives us to keep company with him. And in any discussion of distract, distractions, we shouldn't turn a blind eye either. Another famous story from the Gospels, the parable of the four soils. I believe it's the third soil where it says in Matthew 13, 22, is the amplified version. The one on whom seed was sown among thorns. This is the one who hears the word, but the worries and distractions of the world choke the word and it yields no fruit. Seeds choked out by distraction. You know, am I guilty? Deposits of God's word or promptings of the Holy Spirit that never bore fruit because of distraction in my life? You know, a question we all should ask is, could it be that in those moments where God feels distant, he's not distant, we're just distracted? Have common distractions derailed our communion? And again, this isn't anti-phone. We're not going to have an altar call where we put our phones up here and light them on fire. We're not going to do that. Uh, the quick answer to that is no, right? But this isn't a new issue because a distraction-free life, you get rid of your phones, there's still going to be distractions. A distraction-free life is a pipe dream. What we need is distraction management, discipline. You know, just practical disciplines. I've tried to adopt and reality check. I haven't adopted them perfectly. Is, is one, I want to wake up before my phone and put it to bed before I go to bed. Right? Before I go up and unwind, I either turn my phone on airplane mode or plug it into a wall and just leave it downstairs. Do I do that every night? No. I don't bat a, a thousand or a hundred, however baseball works. I don't really watch baseball. I'm not perfect, right? Secondly, again, 84% of people say they couldn't go a day without their phone. Try it, right? We, we so often talk about a day of rest as, as physical rest. But what, again, what about mental rest? What about resting our soul and just taking time to declutter? I'm not saying turn your phone off or leave it in your car and be in your house all day. Plug it into a wall, chain it to a wall rather than chaining it to your hip, right? Chain it to the wall rather than being chained to your phone. That doesn't mean never use it, but man, your day of rest, rest your mind, rest your soul, hit pause. Because again, to read again from 11 verses, Matthew 11 verses 28 through 30. Are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me. I want us to do that. If we're kind of the worship team come up, we're going to close with, God, I look to you. But he says, are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. We see in the Gospels again and again, that Jesus would withdraw to seclusion, 
solitude to pray. I believe he still does the same. When we step aside into solitude, seclusion to pray, he meets us there. He meets us in those places. And again, could it be if you're here tonight or you've experienced seasons in your life where God feels distant, where he's not distant, we're just distracted. Because there's power in hitting pause. There's power in powering down. It's not inactivity, but a supremely necessary activity. And can we just pause in a way tonight to close in worship? If you could stand where you are. Again, I want to sing this song, God, I look to you, I won't be overwhelmed. It's, it's practicing being still and knowing that he's God. Pausing and then listening and looking and changing our perception and reminding ourselves that he's Lord overall. If you're tired, worn out, burnout, like it says in Matthew 11, and you need to taste the unforced rhythms of grace, then come on, you could do that at the altar. I'm up here to pray. The birches are back there in the corner. They would love to pray for you. If you're tired, if you're burnt out, you're worn out, you just need to taste God's grace again tonight, or there's anything you need to pray for, healing, a relationship, whatever it is, we would love to pray for you. But can we all tonight pause and worship God on our way out tonight and, and remind ourselves that he is Lord through our worship.